Welcome to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of lawyers. And a very pleasant Saturday afternoon, 4th of July holiday to you. This is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. I'm Harry Alexander and uh, Bunker DeFrance. That's me over here. I'm on, sitting here on the 6th of Saturday. Was it Saturday? It's Saturday. But it's the 4th of July weekend. It's the 4th of July weekend, and we're going to celebrate the 4th of July weekend because our founder mm-hmm. was a real live Yankee Doodle Dandy. Yes, a- Abel Franzi. Born on the 4th of July. I know. I know. That's, that's I'm great. I'm a Yankee Doodle Dandy. <laughs> I'm so, a Yankee Doodle guy. So what I thought we would do is take some shows from way past... Excerpts. And do some excerpts of, uh, of the program. And uh, I've, I've, got a, I've got some picked out here that I think are pretty good. But Well, you know what's neat is that if we got, if we got some new listeners out there that, that, that came on board uh, since Frenzy left us, it would be a great, a great way to introduce them mm-hmm. to the guy that put fostered, this all together. Yeah, fostered this program. And... Um, the I think I'm not positive, but I think the show started in 2007. It sounds about right. Because uh, uh, well, it was on for eight years on KBOI, and we've been going for about two and a half years now, haven't we? Yeah. On on podcast. Okay. Well, wow. Around that, so that's around ten years. Sounds, sounds good to me. Damn, that's a long time. That's a lot of shows. Mm. <laughs> no wonder it took me so long to wade through all of the CDs that all I got to find. Yeah. He's got the treasure trove at home. He won't share it with anybody. Okay. Well, I have I have a large, and you were down there with me when I yeah. got all of these. Uh, from uh, his daughter, Monica, uh, we got, um, through Bryce and Sally Reichardt, we got uh, a ton of CDs. Actually, Bunker and I went down to Sally's. And uh, spent all afternoon. Spent all afternoon, number of cocktails, and going through CDs. And and, she can cook. Yeah, and most of those CDs were classical because Mm -hmm. that's an opera because that's that's what he he was an expert. Really was. He he loved it very much. And there were some also also some Western uh, music uh, compositions in there. And, and some soundtrack, Western soundtrack, which is also one of his passions. Right. So we're going to be covering that today on the program. Um, we may run a little long because of it, but uh, hey, I, love it. I think it's worth it. Uh, he he meant a lot to a lot of people, yeah. and I, I know he meant a lot to his family, and uh, um, he meant a lot to his friends and well, you know, his partners. I think you know if you look if you looked up iconic. In a dictionary, a good dictionary, you'd probably have find his name in there somewhere. Well, and that's why we call the show Emil Franzi's Voices of the yeah. West because the guy created the program, uh, and, and uh, uh, with his passing, <clears throat> we felt it was very important. <clears throat> pardon me to uh, continue the legacy. 
Well, you know, and the program has been renamed Abel Franzi's Voices of the West, as well as the website. It's still Voices of the yeah. West dot net, but it's Abel Franzi's Voices of the West, as it should be. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of the things that's going. See, you now I can understand why he had you there as his producer and <laughs> had partner there for all those years. But, why he picked a dumb old country boy like me to come on board <laughs> and you know make me a co-host and, and I'll tell you I've had I've had a lot of mentors in my life and you don't you don't get many mentors when you're in your middle 70s <laughs> and I'll tell you what to me and there's some of the other guys like Henry Wills that I love dearly uh, my stepdad second stepdad but I think the man has had the greatest impact on my life as far as, I mean, really firing me mm -hmm, up and getting, mm -hmm. me, getting me interested, reason to get up more, was this gentleman here, Emil Franzi. Well, he was a student of Western history. Yes. And it, it definitely showed. Um, he could speak intelligently about any, just about any um, portion of the, of the Old West and uh, yeah. he, he knew his movies. He knew his music, and uh, he just he knew, knew his Indians. He, he knew his he knew his cavalry. He knew a damn lot. Yeah. Let's put it that way. So, uh -huh. well, how many people would compare the Zulu Wars with the <laughs> Custer's Last Stand? I know, I know. Yeah, and and just be rivetingly interesting. Yeah. So, what I've got here, what we're going to do first is uh, uh, this. This is a segment from um, the January twentieth, two thousand seven program where. Uh, Emil interviews uh, author Robert Knott, who's been on the show numerous times. Robert's from Santa Fe, New Mexico. A good friend of A good friend. Um, and so uh, what you're going to hear is the original opening of the, uh, of the program, which <clears throat> I had to change when the YouTube got on me about copyright. And my response was three fingers, uh, pick the middle one. <laughs> And, uh, but you know this, this, they can't get you on copyright because this, this is, we're, we're basically kind of a history show. Yeah. And this, we are repeating a piece of history. I really don't care about the damn copyright, <laughs> but I went out and I, I purchased new music so that they would be uh, all happy and uh, and whatnot. But they weren't all that happy, and uh, they still bounced us off of uh, our YouTube channel anyway. They never are happy. No, no, but. When you hear this open and you hear Franzi come on, you know that this is the perfect program. So we're going to go do that right now. Welcome to the Voices of the West, hosted by Emil Franzi and dedicated to the principle that America was better off when our TV shows featured cowboys instead of women. And a great philosophy, if I do say so myself. Tom Danahy's going to stay with us for the first couple of segments before he runs off to be a, I'm good, going to church. Be a good Catholic boy. Hey, our guest today, Robert Knott author of Last of the Cowboy Heroes, The Westerns of Randolph Scott, Joel McRae, and Audie Murphy. 
Robert. Hey. Welcome from Santa Fe. How are you, buddy? Good, sir. Thanks. It's snowing out here. I was going to say, what's the weather like? Oh, I've, I've seen I was that. Maybe snowing here because it was 40 degrees and mm, looking kind of shaky when I came out of the house this morning. Yeah, it ain't cowboy weather right now out here. Wait, we have something to play for you. Yes, oh, we ahead. do. Yeah, play, we got, just, play track one of that. Play track one. This go is ahead. one of my favorites. This is just for you. Well, can't you see that's the last act of a desperate man? We don't care if it's the first act of Henry V. We're leaving. <laughs> now, wait a minute. Wait just one doggone minute here. Just give me 24 hours to come up with a brilliant idea to save our town. Just 24 hours. That's all I ask. No! You'd do it for Randolph Scott. Randolph Scott. All right, Sheriff. 24 hours. <laughs> okay. What movie's that from? Dynamite. That's just dynamite, isn't it? Pro- Blazing Saddles. Blazing Saddles. You'd yeah. do yeah, it we... for Randolph Scott. You know, and seriously, they pick Randolph Scott, not John Wayne. Yep. It is interesting, but I think there was something about the fact that, A, it was a Warner Brothers movie, and Scott was very tied to them back in the 50s, and B, I think actually more people still associate Scott with Westerns, whereas uh, the Duke made so many great non-Westerns and, and not-so-great non-Westerns. We know him as the greatest movie star. I don't know if he's the greatest cowboy star. You're probably getting a gunfight over that, and I'm not sure I want that to happen now. Um, I think of Scott immediately as a, as a cowboy uh, movie hero, um, almost more than the Duke. That's a good point. Uh, I, I think I think a couple of great war movies that Scott was in. Uh, Corvette K two two five is one of the obscure ones I remember well from. Believe it or not, being a kid seeing it in the movie theater. It's a beautiful little movie. I um I also wrote a book, The Films of Randall Scott for McFarland, and I, I reviewed that movie. And it is a really nice war film that's pretty much disappeared. Uh, I saw it on one of those marathon deals. On TV, we we got to check Netflix or one of the others, Blockbuster, to see if they've got it somewhere. Barry Fitzgerald is in that movie too. That's yeah, a good little war really? movie. Yeah, it's a good war movie. It is. Ella Raines is the lead female. And, oh yeah. Um, uh, David Bruce is one of the supporting actors, and uh, I think Bob Mitchum has a small part in it too. He may, because that's when Mitchum was. Uh, was I I saw Mitchum doing a bit part in a Hoppy movie. That's right. <laughs> a couple of years time. ago, I went. I'll be. That's Bob Mitchum. Yeah, and Hoppy just decked him. 20 pictures in 1943, you know, four, five, oh, six lines of dialogue. Yeah, nothing until G.I. Joe. No, that's it, and then the star. But, um, yeah, I think that's the reason. I, I mean, I, I, you know, the Duke is up there along with Scott and Joel McCray and Audie and my top cowboy heroes, but um, I revolve them deciding, you know, who I like the best depending on what movie I've seen recently. But I, I think that Scott's still better known for Westerns. Yeah, he is. I'm trying to think. What other, he did two other good war movies. One of them when he was a pilot. Bombardier. And uh, there's one more besides Bombardier. Come on. Uh, Gung Ho. Gung Ho, of course. That's yeah. his Raiders. That's got Robert Mitchum in it, too. By that, you're right, yeah. Uh, the, you know, uh, when, when, we're not, when we're rattling off the ones we really like, Stuart had his share, too. Uh Winchester 73, having been filmed here at Old Tucson in 1948 49, right around there. That's a terrific Western. Yeah, it is. And uh, the, the great gentleman who just died, who I thought was one of the best, and again, known as an actor more than a Western star, but he made 25 or 26 Westerns, Glenn Ford. Oh, sure. 310 to Yuma. Beautiful. My favorite Western is The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. That's another Stuart great Wayne one. Wayne and Lee Marvin. And Lee Marvin. And Jimmy Stewart, sure. Yeah. 
Um, but I still like Ride the High Country a little better. Maybe. Ooh, that's what you know. One of my best. Uh, that's a great movie. One of my best trivia questions is how many times did John Wayne kill Lee Marvin and in what movies? That's a good trivia question. I hope I'm not being asked it because I have to start ra- running them through my head. I, I you know, uh, <laughs> I think about three or four. Common Cheryl's immediately pops out at you. Sure, and does Liberty Valance. He doesn't kill him in Donovan's Reef. No, he just beats him up. I know. Um, but, but you got to watch it, because Marvin played bit parts, and every once in a while you see him pop up. I saw some second-string older Western. I can't remember which one it was, but he was just one of the herd. You know, those five or six bad guys. Yeah. You know, why wait for the law? Let's string him up now, one of those scenes. Hey, wait a minute. That's Lee Marvin. He's got a few lines in The, the Duel at Silver Creek in the, an Audie Murphy picture from 52, and he has a few scenes with Murphy and disappears. He doesn't come back for the final gunfight, but now that I think of it, I think Scott killed Lee Marvin in three movies, so it might be... <laughs> and there, there you go. Whoops. No, it's right. There. Let's try Whoa! What are we doing? Turn me down. Turn you down. Turn me down. One of turn one of us down. There we go. Okay, much better. Yeah, I'm still. Uh, so that was uh, that was uh, classic Franzi there. Uh, that was classic. That <clears throat> was him. It, it certainly is dated 2007, and he's mentioning blockbuster. <laughs> yeah, that that's one of the things is you, you see his mind. You know. I'm kind of one track, I, 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 you know, and he's from he's from cowboys to war movies to Randall yeah. Scott to John Wayne and just yeah. there we go. Yeah, he uh, yeah, it, 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 he he would wander, but he would come back to the point. Right. Yeah, I don't think minutes. he was wondering. I, th- I, <laughs> I don't know, either. I, th- I think he was just using another path to get there. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, he was a great interviewer, no question about oh, that. Yeah. He, he interviewed uh, tons of authors, tons of stars. I you know, I can't say about inside track and interviewing people, but I know you can you can hear it in his voice when he's interviewing. Yeah. Not here. He's just he's like a he's like a kid in a candy store. He is, and he all he. I produced the uh, inside track program uh, for him. Uh, when did they start doing that? Twenty ten or twelve? Took twelve, I think. Yeah. And um, then I started, uh, uh, and also Voices of the West. He told me one time after the Inside Track was over, he says, "Damn, I'm glad to be done with that. Let's have some fun." And yeah. Went into the Western show. <laughs> it's like, it's like yeah, okay, I have to do the three hours. Yeah. Now let's. Yeah. Let's let's kick back yeah. and and he obviously knew his politics, no question about oh, that. Yeah. So, uh, in case you're just tuning in, uh, this is Emil Franzi's Voices of the West, and we are uh, we are celebrating uh, the boss's uh, birthday. Birthday. Yeah, he was a happy birthday, Yankee buddy. Doodle Dandy, uh, and uh, <laughs> so that's just kind of where that's at. All right, what I'm going to do now is we're going to do a commercial break, and then when we come back, we will uh, show another side of Emil. Um, his expertise. <laughs> he was an expert in damn near everything, or you know, well, you know the words well read. That's another. If you yeah. look it up in the dictionary, his name's going to be somewhere there. But uh, on this particular topic that we'll explore after the commercial break, he knows exactly what he is talking about, and that is way way cool. So with that, we'll be back with much more of Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. On this 4th of July holiday weekend, right after this. 
Sounds absurd, but I give you my word. I hate to go out hunting, cause the bears give me the bird. Whenever they see me, they slap their paws with glee and yell, Come out of hiding, we're as safe as we can be. The Tucson Trap and Ski Club is one of the best kept economic secrets in town. This 900 member group maintains one of the finest shotgun shooting ranges in the country, featuring trap, skeet, five stand, and sporting clays fields, and hosts national and international events that bring thousands of people and millions of dollars into our community. The Spring Satellite Grand American Tournament alone involves 1,200 participants for 10 days. Learn more about this and their other contributions to our community at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year, we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond checking stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. Hello, podcast listeners. I'm Tom, the host of the Movies Outs podcast, and I'm inviting you to give the Movies Outs podcast a listen. Every episode, my co-hosts and I review the latest box office releases, but there's more than simply just that. We also play games like the Alexa quote of the show and may the odds be ever in your favor and have a from the cutting room floor segment that is an open forum to discuss anything from our thoughts of a Netflix TV series to our experiences with movie subscriptions such as the AMC Stubbs or MoviePass. So, after finishing this podcast, please give the Movies Out podcast a listen. We can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Simply search Movies Out. Until then, that's a wrap. Read classic Western comics anytime at VoicesOfTheWest.net. like he's got rubber bones his hair's always shaggy his whiskers grow like moss his clothes are always baggy he's a total loss mother nature must have made his legs to fit a horse old bow-legged john welcome back to emil franzi's voices of the west we are back on emil franzi's voices of the west it is a saturday afternoon and for us uh, the fourth of july weekend a little bit of uh, well, fuzzy night there to start us out. To bears give me the bird. <laughs> well, yeah, I, you know, I just I just had a thought. I never thought about this before. You know, fuzzy and smiley Burnett up of the sidekicks. I think those were the only two that really did the, the goofy comedy songs, and they wrote and they wrote a lot of them. Mm-hmm, they did, uh, and uh, we'll be doing a show on sidekicks uh, in the not too distant future. It'll be and, a <clears throat> it certainly will. Uh, and after uh, coming out, we heard uh, 
old bow-legged Jones from uh, Ray Whitley. Ray, you know, he and Johnny Bond, yeah. uh, they were two of the stars of Western cowboy music and uh, uh, in, in the films and... Uh, On the West Coast, they were the, the big, I don't know what you'd call them, night, nightclubs or or barn, barn shows, mm -hmm. but they, they, they used big dance, and they were on the radio with their shows, that's mm -hmm. how popular they were, and they, people would pack out to them. Okay, now we're going to uh, <clears throat> give to you uh, the expertise of Mr. Franzi here uh, on Old West Firearms. Here he's talking with Carl Carsarda, and uh, this show is from... February 7 of 2015. And when we talk about Western guns, how far back do we want to go? And I think when we start talking about Western movies as, as kind of the criteria, because we discussed that at great length, uh, and, and we've gotten all kinds of interesting definitions, um, but the real definition is a value system much more than it is a place or a time. Uh, for example, if you want to go back to that great year for all kinds of movies, but particularly westerns with Stagecoach and Dodge City and the others, 1939 gave us both Allegheny Uprising and Drums Across the Mohawk, both of which are about the French and Indian War, and upstate New York was right in the middle of it all. Mm -hmm. And baby, that be the West. <laughs> and you had to figure out how to do it with a flintlock musket or a Kentucky or whatever they were packing then. Uh, so as you move through the history of the frontier in America, you end up with the definition of whatever weapon he had. I, and I remember this when I was a little kid at the old Lorena Theater in Sherman Oaks. My dad had a, had a friend of his who was a, uh, a gun guy, kind of. And uh, I remember he, was, he, he had parked some stuff in the office. And what they were were percussion smoothbores with short barrels. And I was told they were old muskets that had been converted to percussion and sawed off. And I went, oh, that's kind of cool. So I learned that when I was about 10. And now what we've discovered, just for kicks, and we'll start the discussion there, probably one of the most common weapons, forget the Colt revolver and the Winchester repeater and all that good stuff, that were too damn expensive for most of the people who settled uh, after the Civil War to afford the most common weapon brought with you in that wagon, which is how you traveled, was a Civil War musket, in many instances an old flintlock smoothbore from Austria-Hungary that had been converted to percussion and was 69 caliber, which the last time I looked is what, about 16 gauge? Yeah, that's about right. <laughs> and uh, you, you got them for about a buck surplus. And you threw a couple, three of them in the wagon, and that's what you packed, because you could do just about anything with it, right? Well, it makes sense. I mean, the military arms surplus markets existed post-Civil War, even before it, right? I mean, that after the war ended, there's massive numbers of these weapons laying around. They're easy to convert, and they're incredibly uh, durable. And um, uh, they have a lot of uh, variability in terms of their application. When you have that, that, that low-cost weapon that you can use for hunting, for self-defense, you just carry powder, percussion caps, which are pretty reliable when you know how to use them. You can do anything you need with them. It makes total sense. Well, now, you're going to leave St. Louis, and you're heading for Colorado. There are not a lot of 7-Elevens along the way, okay? 
<laughs> there ain't no Second Amendment arms or a diamondback out there in the middle of nowhere. So you're going to have to bring your ammo with you. Now, about that time, and we talked about this a little bit before I went on the air, there were more damn calibers then than there are now. Oh yeah, the the the, the competition for calibers, and you know the uh, when the cartridge conversions and cartridges started becoming more and more common, everybody had their own forty four this or thirty two that, and therefore finding the one for the particular gun you had is a uh, would have been a challenge. So, uh, in my opinion, the the idea of the uh, the cartridge conversions where you could flip back and forth between a, a cap and ball or a cartridge made a lot of sense if you were dealing with small arms like handguns. But in terms of just avoiding that whole newfangled cartridge issue certainly just loose powder ball and shot and caps makes a lot of sense well and if you did run into one of the few stores you were going to run into in some of the places you hit along the way you, you knew they were going to have two things powder and caps from there on out and 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 maybe some lead which you would melt down yourself or whatever the, the mold that fit your particular piece you were carrying but i tell you what i mean if you have to you can probably take down a wild turkey at 20 yards with a barrel full of rocks no you, you could even to some degree defend yourself with that i sure. mean obviously not optimal but it that's where that smooth bore gun makes total sense remember that wonderful painting that i, I saw once on the cover of i think it was true western frontier times of the frontiersman Looking off at the two Comanches, I guess they would be at about 75 yards, and he's sitting there with the flintlock and the powder horn and the bullet mold and all of it, waiting for them to make their move. Well, the deal that what they would try to do first of all, a lot of times guys would carry two rifles, that sure. was one way out, fastest of that. reload. And uh, and the other way would be, uh, if there were two Indians, they'd try to get you to screw up and miss with the first shot so they could rush you. Uh, and you then had better be ready to... And, and there's What's the great movie where there's Burt Lancaster? The Kentuckian, 1955. There's a guy on one side of a creek, and he's on the other, and he's fired his one shot and missed, and Lancaster's running like mad to get across the creek, and the guy's madly trying to reload that puppy. And since he's not the star, he doesn't quite make it. But uh, I'll never forget that scene, too, when I was a kid, and, uh, and it was uh, most interesting as to what went on then. Now, eventually, as time wore on, and, and an interesting book about this, and we both talking about because you've got a copy at home, and I brought mine in, Arming the West, a fresh new look at the guns that were actually carried on the frontier. Well, by this they mean the frontier after the Civil War, which seems to be the area we spend most of our time in, including making most of our movies about, but most of the frontier's good stuff, a lot of it occurred earlier in the century when the Indians had a much better shot because, frankly, if I knew how to use it, I'd probably be better off with a bow at 100 yards than I would be with whatever else we had. I would say that the bow actually was a more capable weapon in many ways besides range and power in terms of early firearms. I mean, that single shot that you have, like you said, you have range on them, but once that is expended, you're in trouble. Plus, the, uh, the bow has a high rate of fire as well as it can do things that a firearm can't, like shoot over cover. They can, it's an indirect fire weapon. Mm -hmm. And you uh, can get it wet. And you can get it wet, and it also doesn't make that much noise. No, when, that's a good point. When you're when, when you're there, I mean that wonderful sound. Uh, in I'm trying to think of the movie on Agincourt, the one uh, the Henry V movie of uh, of Olivier, where you can hear the the whoosh sound when they fire the mass firing of the of the arrows, and that's a classic example of indirect fire too, because mm -hmm. those French 
Ah, they never learn, do they? <laughs> <laughs> they should have thought about that when they went into World War One, but that's another issue. Anyhow, this is a great book because I'll tell you what it does do. It's about a company called uh, what's the name of the outfit? Schuyler, Hartley, and Graham's Arm Shipments to the American Frontier, 1868-1886, by Herbert House, published in 2008. And they've gone through the records of this one firm, and they'll tell you what they're shipping out. And it's interesting that uh, if you just pull one uh, just for a uh, shipment to Colorado, I just pulled a page out of nowhere. Uh Carlos Gove and Company, Denver, November 17, 1874, Journal 1, page 354. 20, one case of 20 Allen rifles, no bayonets, 50 caliber center fire. January 11, 1875, 20 Sharps rifles, no bayonets, 50 caliber center fire. And then we have all this spread of stuff, Sharps carbine, uh, in 52, Sharps Carbine in 50, Star Carbine in 52, Star Carbine, Caliber 54, the Linen, a Gallagher, a Palmer, a Maynard, a Peabody, a U.S. Cavalry Pistol, Bright Bass Mounted Caliber 54, that's going to be a single shot, and uh, one Colts Army Rifle 44 Caliber Refinished, a Lee Fouché 12mm French Pinfire, and a Gallagher Carbine. That was what was sent that day to Denver to that one shop. Fascinating. Well, I mean, before the types of regulations that we're used to now regards firearms, which was not existing at that time, of course, uh, these things were just treated like commodities. So having this in and out of the country or having it come from other countries, and a lot of the foreign weapons came here, there was absolutely no reason not to. Well, yeah, because we weren't the only ones that had a war surplus. Everybody, it, it, the, I found this out finally paying attention. The Alamo was fought on both sides with Napoleonic war, res, uh, war surplus. Both sides are using brown best muskets and Baker rifles. <laughs> How about that? It's interesting. Yeah, in yeah. 1836, they hadn't quite gotten around a percussion yet. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you hear about the squirrel rifle. No, they were using Baker's. Uh, which was Brit leftovers from 1850. Now what do you do? Well, you peddle them to Texans, I guess. <laughs> and and, to, and Mexican government bought a whole lot of them. And, of course, when we took the armories, the Texicans took the armories down there. What do you mean, we? Uh, uh, depends on who you think we is. Personally, my guys were over in Italy shooting at Austrians at the time, so you know we won't want to count it. But uh, uh, when you talk about uh, who had what weapon, Basically, uh, a lot of the weapons of the Texas militia were the weapons of the Mexican army because that was was common there. So they would have had brown besses as opposed to uh, left. There wasn't that much American musket surplus either. Well, history is always a cycle in this regard, and, and whatever is most common is going to be the most used. I mean, uh, another thing you think about is everyone thinks of Colt revolvers, but frankly, low-cost Belgian revolvers were a wash. Well, and if I had my pick... I'd probably take the after the, the war. I'd probably take the Remington because it's, I can still do cap and ball with it. But if I'm lucky and I can find some cartridges and I've got that 46 rimfire cylinder, I can do it. Clint did made it look so easy in Pale Rider. It's it not. Ain't, it, it's it ain't not, that. I, yeah. No. Uh, we talked about that. Anybody that has a Remington 58 knows what I'm talking about. 
it, you can get that cylinder out faster than you can on taking a Colt apart, but uh, they don't go quite as easy as speed loaders like uh, they were making it out to be. No, and, and actually, the study of cartridge conversions and all those—that—that's a—that's a study of its own of its own discipline. There's so much of that. There were factory conversions, uh, blacksmith conversions, home lots conversions. of blacksmith conversions. Yeah. And you were in them, you say, "What the hell is this?" Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like for example, when the cartridge conversion thing started happening, we talked about this briefly before the show. One people, a lot of people, haven't seen is the Crispin. Have you seen the Crispin? No. It's very interesting. They were trying to get around the patent because, of course, Smith & Wesson owned the patent of a pulley bored through cylinder that loaded from the rear. So this Crispin comes out, and it's a cylinder that's split in two. About one third. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. And, and, and you open it up, and the cartridge kind of looks like a football. And you actually seat it between the two halves of the cylinder, close it, and the actual percussion, the, the rimfire component where the fulminant mercury strike is actually around the edge of the cartridge as opposed to the rear of it. Hmm. That would be kind of their work. Yeah, from my understanding, they do. But, I mean, it's just an oddball thing. <laughs> Talk about oddball things. Yeah. Let me turn my... Down? Down oh. there again, please. Down. There we go. Thank you. Uh, Franzi was quite the expert on firearms. No question about that. Um, oh, yeah. Wow. And I have to tell you, I'm, I'm the now the proud owner of the... Remington 58 that he is talking about. He, oh, gift, he cool. gifted that he to me. He never showed that to me. Yeah, he gifted that to me, and uh, I'm just waiting for some dollars to get the cartridge, uh, uh, the conversion. Have cylinder. you fired it? I have not fired it yet. Um, oh. It's been cleaned, yeah. but I just haven't gotten out to the range to do you it. You holding out on me here? I didn't know you had that. You never showed it me. Oh, well, you know, I'm show and tell kind of guy. You come over to my well, house, I'm like, I'm bringing all the obscure things out trying to impress you. Well, I. I Probably not a good idea to bring it to breakfast. <laughs> well, I was thinking, like, I have breakfast over at your place. You know, well, we there, there see, is that. Yeah. You know, we get to see a movie yeah. and yeah. have laughs. So, all right. That's, that was uh, great. That's Emil on uh, firearms, one of his very, very favorite topics. And <laughs> I understand that after he passed, the family had... They they kept finding firearms scattered about <laughs> under, under this over he, that. He had, There's probably still a few more hidden away. Out he, there. Yeah, he had so many that I don't think he knew how many he had. Like his books and his opera records. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, okay, we're gonna do another break here and uh, come back with much more of what um, Emil Franzi's Voices of the West was like All of that. when the boss was around and. Uh, We'll do that after these very important messages. Do stay tuned. When looking for a property management company, here are some things you should consider. How long has the company been in business? What types of properties can they manage for you? And does the company give back to the community? Well, your search is over. 
The Polash Management Company meets and exceeds those considerations. They've been in business in Tucson, Arizona since the 1960s. They manage all types of properties throughout Arizona and elsewhere, from residential to commercial to public sector properties. The Polash Management Company also dedicates its time and resources to numerous community projects, including help funding the drive for the USS Arizona Memorial at the University of Arizona. You also want a property management company that puts you, the customer, first. Contact the Paul Ash Management Company today at paulashmanagement.com and ask about the complete package or call 520-795-2100. That's 520-795-2100. The Paul Ash Management Company, property managers you can trust. Can you even imagine switching back to pen and paper to run your business? Every year we become more and more dependent upon our technology. If your network is not set up properly, you're just one click or one email away from losing data critical to your operation. Arizona Computer Guru offers a host of services to prevent and protect you from disaster. From online backup services to email filtering to fully managed network services, Arizona Computer Guru is here to keep your network secure, your data safe, and your budget in the black. To schedule your free consultation, call 304-8300. Hello? I'm Mr. Red. No doubt you've heard about rescue groups for dogs and cats. But did you know there's a rescue group for horses? That's right. It's called Horse It Around Rescue. Founders Steve Boyce and Teresa Worrell are helping out all those equine victims of neglect and cruelty by giving them a place to restore their health and wellness. And Horse It Around provides a nurturing and natural environment where horses can be horses, so they can be adopted out into forever homes. More than 120 horses, mules, and donkeys have been adopted out, but like everything else, it costs money to run the project. Horse It Around is a 501c3 nonprofit located in Southeast Arizona. Your tax-deductible donations to Horse It Around will go a long way so those horses can be horses. Check out the website, horseitaroundrescue.org. Make a difference in a horse's life. That's horseitaroundrescue.org. We've already got a cook. That is right, Mr. Dunson. But might be old cookie might not like grubbing the trip all that way. You heard me good that time, didn't you? Well, I might be able to persuade him. It might be just the time of year when old Cookie like a, a change of scenery could be persuaded. It might be they're already persuaded because he happened to quit this morning. Well, then it might be we could persuade you to drive the chuck wagon. Might be, Mr. Dunson. Might be. Franzi's Voices of the West. And we are back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. It is the 4th of July edition. We are uh, paying tribute to and honoring and celebrating the life of uh, the boss, Emil Franzi, uh, who passed away two years ago. And uh, he's a Yankee Doodle Dandy. That's why we're doing yes, it is. today. You know, it's it's so funny. You know, we have Patsy Montano Yodel in here, yeah. just yeah. leading into the break. Yeah. And August 8th is World Yodel Day. <laughs> Are you going to enter or, or partake? Oh, yeah, I'm going to yodel. Go get out there in the yard. And, <laughs> Who knows? Some Swiss, some Swiss guy across. I hope it's not a Swiss guy across the court will answer me. <laughs> okay. Next up on the agenda, we're going to talk, uh, or Abel's going to talk with the guy. He's a Phoenix newspaper reporter, Dave Wagner. And he wrote this book called Politics of Murder, and it revolves around Barry Goldwater, 
uh, in the early days there. So let's just get right to that. All right, let's get on to the politics of murder. What the hell is going was going on in this state, and who really were? Uh, and look, I may be a hard right conservative Republican, but feel free to bring up Barry Goldwater. It's okay with me. Okay, well, that's he's he really figures looms rather large in this book, so it'd be hard. Yes, to avoid. he does. It'd be kind of hard to avoid, and yeah, and, and it's kind of hard to avoid an establishment that at best played footsie with the mob. Can, can, is that a fair uh, appraisal? I think that's absolutely fair, and I think it's also fair to say that uh, this was not uncommon. It was all over the country, and I said a lot of it happened during the war, uh, and um, and in the 30s as well. But you know, you can read books like uh, one that's called "On the Take" by the great sociologist uh, William Chambliss, and it, and it tracks the same people of the same generation in the same period, the 60s and 70s, uh, in Seattle. And the, the uh, similarities are absolutely breathtaking. So I think, and as he says in his book, every city of any size in the country basically had the same kind, the same cast of characters, or, you know, the, the mobsters, the politicians. And, uh, but it was a time when um, what I call the saloon culture uh, in the West sort of was a common ground between the mobsters and the old Pauls because, uh, you know, the saloon culture in the West, and, you know, in, in Tucson, one of the greatest books on the saloon culture was written uh, uh, there uh, in the form of that diary. God, his name escapes me right now. But uh, it's about women and uh, six guns and horse racing in the streets and uh, whiskey and gambling. And uh, uh, so this is the West was founded on a lot of these things. God, especially Arizona. Well, so they grew up with sort of a similar similar cultures, only the mob went through it back in the East. These were you know, the immigrants who came in. So the old East and the old West had a lot of similarities. Well... First of all, you're talking to a guy with a vowel on the end of his name, but my people are from so far north that, you know, we didn't even speak the same language, literally, mm-hmm. okay? Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, my guys are clean because they won't let us in. You're talking about Milan now? Uh, I'm further north. Try uh, Actually, my family came to a little town called Palanza, which is on Lago Maggiore, which is across the line from Switzerland. So if I have actually oh, yeah. stood on the shore of that lake... It was kind of fun. We went there on Christmas of 2000, and uh, on Christmas Day, or on, Christ, you know, on Christmas Eve, we were up there, and uh, uh, my daughter tapped me on the shoulder and turned me around, and I pointed towards a store about 50 yards off. It was Ettore Franzi's clothing store, which had been there, it was celebrating its centenary, it had been there since yeah. the year 1900. So, yeah, we're, we're kind of from far north there. Uh, but I do... I did get to know Bill Bonanno rather well, and uh, Bill was a guest on this show on several times, and he was pretty candid about a lot of things. Is this junior or senior? You're uh, uh, Bill was uh, was Joe's son. Yeah, Bill Junior. Yeah, who? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went to uh, the ninety fifth birthday party. You know, a small gathering for five hundred of their closest friends. Yeah, and huh. uh, it was a pretty good party. 
And well, I, I should say, for in fairness to the Tucson listeners, that the bananas don't figure in this book, and uh, and Licavoli only Peter Licavoli only shows up uh, fleetingly, peripherally. Yeah, I mean, peripherally. The, it was a different deal. Uh, the way yeah. I got the message was they didn't do much of anything here except invest their money in real stuff. And he told me there was one street corner. He had a uh, bananas had a corner. Licavoli had a corner. Uh, Nanini had a corner, and DeConcini had a corner, and they used to call it Guinea Corners. I'll be darned. They each had 40 know. acres in the middle of what is now Oro Valley. Oh, well, Licavoli's, uh, didn't he have his huge ranch there? Yeah, they had the ranch, and, and yeah. now, the, the way I got the story on Licavoli was the, the, the commission, for want of a better term, had uh, sent... Licavoli out out of the Detroit family to be yeah. the hotel operator for what yeah. were generally called the uh, Sicilian wetbacks, who guys had been deported, came back e- around, exactly. came, came up from uh, Mexico and cooled off in Tucson for a couple of months before they went home. And it was yes. wide open to all the families, and right. nobody basically screwed around here. Now, yeah, I, that, that's, and what that's I just too, another right? example of uh, Emil <laughs> with knowledge of all kinds of things. Uh, he was talking with Dave Wagner, a Phoenix newspaper reporter, you know, about list, uh, politics of murder. Listening to this, it makes me wonder why we do it because there's no way we can we can replicate. Oh God, no! What he did in oh, his geez. abilities. Absolutely not, and I certainly wouldn't try. No. We're going to do our break a bit early here because I got some longer tracks to come up. So we'll be back with much more of Abel Franchi's Voices of the West right after this. <laughs> Right Imus Wilkinson Investments, 777-1911, is a unique investment management firm. They pay little attention to where the market indicators are because smart investment management goes way beyond check and stock exchanges. They are very good at managing all types of investment based on client expectations. They build relationships, and they want clients, not customers. My family is proudly included among them, and they'll help you, as they did us, design a portfolio that achieves what you want when you need it. Imus Wilkinson Investments, they're really good at what they do. 777-1911. Hi, this is Joe Montaigne. Every time my Uncle Willie tells me about his service in Patton's Third Army in World War II, I'm reminded of what we owe the U.S. Army. Fourteen generations of American soldiers who have courageously defended our nation. Their stories represent the best of America and should never be forgotten. Join me to help build the National Museum of the United States Army a long overdue tribute to all American soldiers. To learn more, visit armyhistory.org. Besides bringing millions a year into this community with national and international events, the Tucson Trap and Ski Club at 7800 West Old Ajo Highway services the local shooting sports community with a 380-acre site featuring trap, skeet, five-stand, and two sporting clays fields, as well as a 9,000-square-foot clubhouse, which all is available to local shooters, and soon an archery range. Check it out at TucsonTrapAndSkeet.com or take a drive out west of town and see it for yourself. New members or single-day use, welcome. Old Western Radio Theater every Saturday at 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time only on the Voices of the West. VOW Radio. 
Welcome back to Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. We are back on Emil Franzi's Voices of the West. It is the 4th of July weekend, and uh, we're honoring the boss, who was a Yankee Doodle Dandy. Emil Franzi passed away two years ago. And, oh, I'm um, a Yankee Doodle Franzi. Yeah, for sure. Uh, <laughs> yepper. Okay, yeah. we've got uh, a couple more to do here, and this was Franzi's favorite thing to do. The music. The music, Western uh, music, yes. so without further ado, here we go. I have brought to you what we considered on several occasions to be all the great Western movie film music from you know, the 30s on, and particularly that golden age of the 50s and 60s and 70s and the Elmer Bernsteins and the, and the, uh, and the uh, uh, Dimitri Tiomkin and all the major guys. That era is so rich. It, it's almost like going into Italian opera in the 19th century. I mean, you just keep kicking over stuff, and you say, hey, wait a minute, what, 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 we forgot about this guy. I have accumulated today, I went, I went back in and looked for some stuff we hadn't paid much attention to uh, in my own collection, and came to the conclusion, there's a whole lot more of really great film music laying around out there that I'd love to share with you and some other people, and I'm going to be doing... I won't be doing it this year, but I hope to be doing it a year after. Uh, I have a, a, a seminar at the Western Writers of America conference where I can actually stand up and talk about some of these dudes and do the same thing. Uh, I don't know if I'm ever going to get a book out of it because the book tends to be kind of a boring encyclopedia after a while, and I know it can get kind of boring because it's kind of boring for me. I'm already up to having cataloged over 300 composers. And I got a couple hundred more, and every time I think I'm done, I pop in a one and, uh, oh, wait a minute, this guy did 35 movies and 178 TV shows. Mm, okay, I guess we better put him in too. And it's just amazing to me, uh, how deep this really goes. So I'm going to start off, uh, with Hugo Montenegro, that's a name you may or may not know. Uh, used to be pretty good in popular music. Uh, he was born in 1925, died in 1981. He died young. Uh, a New York City guy in U.S. Navy, two years, was an arranger at the Newport News Band. Uh, after the war, he went to Manhattan College, studied composition, led his own band. Again, it's interesting that so much of the Western movie and television music was written by guys from the East Coast. Okay, I mean, when you think that the the father of much of it was the late Aaron Copeland, who was a gay New York communist Jew, okay, but and, he wrote great music. Yeah, but but he put an E major chord on top of an A major chord. Next thing you know, everybody else was copying him, and he taught guys like Elmer Bernstein. Anyway, by the eight, middle 50s, he was directing and conducting the orchestra Elliot Glenn, Irving Spice, Dragon and Caprice uh, labels, uh, out in Colorado, The Chosen Few, or a couple of his big hits. This is even before my time, or at least my time of paying attention. Number of albums, and he was most important for, for what he did. He did the um, rearrangements of... Morricone's music for the Clint Eastwood, the Man with No Name series uh, of the Spaghetti Westerns. And they got him way up there as an arranger, and it was his biggest pop hit. He made a whole lot of money off it, and then he ended up being a major player in the, uh, in the, uh, 
in the uh, Hollywood composition game. So let's hit it. Give me number one on the first disc. Uh, this is a movie called... John Wayne and Rock Hudson. The Undefeated. About the Confederate outfit that runs into the Duke, who was a Union officer running a cattle drive in Mexico, and the Confederates are last gasp rebs and how they end up being on the same side against the next I believe the director on it was Burt Kennedy if I'm not sure but yeah it was it was uh, a okay. good movie I just saw, saw it recently yeah 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 I'm almost a John Wayne movie come on it's also a Rock Hudson movie but it's basically a good flick but it also has a certain sound to it uh, there's a Montenegro sound I, I, I played this back to myself and it's not quite Elmer Bernstein. It's not quite Jerry Goldsmith. Uh, the guy's got a distinctive sound, and you know when you hear it. It's one thing about the about the Western film music genre. You know when you hear it that you're hearing a Western. Uh, if it's the use of folk tunes or bugle calls or whatever, you can tell the difference. Syncopated rhythms tend to come along with it, too. That's how you identify a military score. Syncopation. You'd almost guess Elmer Bernstein right here. They didn't know better. And that's a pretty damn good thing to guess. Write a tune, which is something most of them can't do anymore. I mean, put dots down on the paper, right? <laughs> well, so far, the only thing I've published on all this is that wonderful piece I had in Roundup, the magazine of the. Um, Western Writers of America, which was called, and I stole it from John Camrata, that great line, how did we ever settle the West without bringing the French horns? Indeed. How did we ever win the West without the French horns? Franzi was, uh, he just loved, he just loved the music. He was so knowledgeable. Couldn't you just... Uh, you, you, to say that now, saying that now, I'm picturing Eddie Dean, whose birthday is coming up next Tuesday. Mm-hmm. I'm picturing Eddie Dean riding behind the chuck wagon <laughs> instead of the guitar playing a French horn. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> um, I, I, 
as I mentioned at the beginning of the program, we I was trying to find the very first uh, program uh, that Emil did, uh, Voices of the West. He his guest was uh, Bob Shelton from Old Tucson, oh, and if I find that, we'll rerun it. But I spent the fourth over some friends out with. Uh, Carolyn Martin, you know, mm -hmm. Bob's widow, yeah, yeah. and we were talking about Bob all all afternoon. Yeah. It was just wonderful. Great, great guy. My my uh, great memory of Bob Sheldon is when he gave me the Hopalong Cassidy coin. Oh yeah, <laughs> I got two of those. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. Uh, one <laughs> I of the, have to say, <clears throat> one of the other uh, things that Emil uh, was great on was uh, talking with uh, the stars and uh, and such, and. Uh, well, we didn't get a star on this one, but we did get Pam Marvin, and uh, uh, this is lovely. This is just a great piece. John Ford. He worked with Ford in two movies that I remember. One of them was, of course, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, but the other was Donovan's Reef. Yep. How did he get along with Ford? Oh, a lot of guys didn't. Loved him. But this is, uh, and Ford really liked Lee a lot. And I think and one of the reasons, Lee was not afraid of him at all, as most people were. And, of course, John Wayne, you know, he's, he would, in Liberty Valance, he kind of used Lee. When John, as Ford said, when John was kicking up a bit, he'd call Lee. Get him all dressed up in his outfit and everything and, and make him come in and just stand on the set. And for some reason or other, that sort of calmed down to, to have Wayne somehow, I don't know. But uh, no, he, he uh, really liked, and of course, both of them were uh, patriots, naturally, and I think uh, Ford, because of his you know the working with the OSS in the beginning of the war and his his all his involvement in the war things and Lee being a marine plus Lee's heritage he was a descendant of as you say the uh, George Washington's brother was his uh, and he was named after Robert E Lee because uh, uh someone it, it, Mary Ball Washington who was at General Washington's mother, her one of her grandchildren married um, Robert E. Lee. Aha. Uh -huh. Okay, yeah, right. Lee, That's where we got it. That's what they call the school, Washington and Lee. Did Lee have a preference uh, uh, of the type of movies he did, westerns or action or the, the war movies? Uh, any preference? Well, I, I, I can't say that. I think it was just that every script, whatever... The script that he decided to do was something that he really felt he could do and do well. Right. I asked and, you before the yeah. show about that he loved riding horses because a lot of a lot of uh, movie people you think oh they love riding horses and you said <laughs> no not unless he got paid a whole lot of money for it. He Dennis, said. Dennis he Weaver said, said the same thing. He, said, he didn't want any horses unless he got paid a lot of. Money. He said I've been under and over too many horses and I'm not doing that until I'm really paid for it. Oh, what a great rider! But. Oh, that was wonderful, what you just said about about that death scene, too. You know, I really appreciate that so much. That uh, No, I don't know anybody has brought that up, that death scene in Raintree County. Thank you. And that would be our tribute to the boss. Yeah. Emil Franzi. And uh, I don't know, all I can say is he was a great guy. And, and he's, he's missed, and 
um, we carry on the legacy. He's still with us. You know, right. let's, let's just put it that way. He's still with us. I'm glad that we have the Fourth of July because it's a great reason to remember him. Besides yeah. what, besides American yeah. Independence, yeah. But remembering a great guy on a great day. Yeah. So that's our Fourth of July program for uh, this time. I think that <clears> was <throat> a pretty humdinger, Harry. I reckon. We'll be back. Uh, <clears throat> pardon me. Yeah. If I get my voice working. Yeah. We will be back uh, next week with much more of Emil Francis' The Voices of the West. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Emil Franzing's Voices of the West.